Hello and welcome to the UN and Organised Crime, a podcast series from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Ian Tennant. In this episode, we are returning to the ongoing UN negotiations on a new cybercrime treaty. We've been covering this in several episodes of this podcast. This process is very important for the future of both organised crime and cyber policy at the UN. But over a year and a half since the process officially started, states are still no closer to agreement on the fundamentals of this treaty than they were at the beginning. In April, the negotiating committee met for its fifth session in Vienna, and in August they will convene again for another session in New York, which is supposed to be the penultimate session before a final meeting in the beginning of 2024 to adopt a new treaty. At the recent meeting in April, states focused their discussions on the treaty's chapters covering international cooperation, technical assistance, prevention, as well as the Convention's implementation mechanism. The discussions on international cooperation and technical assistance were extensive and outlined the widespread polarization on some of the key issues of this treaty, such as on human rights, the role of non-state actors, and the scope of cooperation. I have two guests with me today who have been closely following and engaging in these discussions as non-state observers or multi-stakeholders in the parlance of this committee. I will be discussing with them some of the details of the last meeting in April and what to expect from the committee next, including at the next meeting in August. I'm delighted that we have today joining us Joyce Hackmey. She is the Deputy Director of the International Security Programme at Chatham House and co-editor of the Journal of Cyber Policy. She's been coordinating a wide range of engagement and substantive inputs into the committee from the perspective of civil society. We're also very lucky to have with us Pavlina Pavlova, who is Public Policy Advisor at the Cyber Peace Institute, based in Geneva, where she works on advancing international law and norms under the framework of responsible state behaviour in cyberspace, representing the Cyber Peace Institute at the UN Open-Ended Working Group on ICTs and at the UN Ad Hoc Committee on Cybercrime, which we are discussing today. So I'm going to ask my first question of today's episode to Joyce Hackme from Chatham House. First of all, welcome, Joyce. Thank you, Ian. Great to be on the podcast with you and Pavlina today. Thank you. So Joyce, Chatham House has been engaging closely in this process. And in the last session, your organization presented a paper to the committee on the rights and harms risks of capacity building. It might not seem immediately obvious that there are risks in helping states to build their capacity to prevent and counter cyber crimes. Can you please elaborate on what you see as the main risks of this potential treaty in terms of capacity building? Sure. As you mentioned, uh, Ian, we at Chatham House have been closely engaging in the process since the very beginning, really, where we have been organizing side events, writing briefing papers, and the aim of which is to provide the states who are negotiating this treaty with civil society perspectives on important issues to make sure that the treaty is indeed fit for purpose and is human-centric. So for the last round of the negotiations for the fifth session, we picked the topic of capacity building and the human rights risks that might result from capacity building in general, but also the capacity building facilitated through this convention, precisely for the reason that you mentioned that it might not be obvious that there are risks to it. So we wrote a briefing paper, which can be found on the HC website, and where we focused on three main risks. 
The first one, we talked about the tools and skills that can be gained through uh, cybercrime capacity building that are dual use. And this means that they can be used for different purposes, including for malicious intent. So we focus on the risk where these tools and skills are intentionally used for oppressive activities that violate human rights and fundamental freedoms. So an example on this is surveillance technologies. We have seen many cases around the world recently where these technologies have been sold to countries initially for legitimate purposes, such as fighting crime, fighting terrorism. But in many cases, as several human rights organizations have documented, these technologies have been used, in fact, to hack into journalists' phones, human rights defenders, politicians, and spy on them, but therefore violating the rights and freedoms. So not really for the legitimate purposes that they were intended for. So it's really important to understand this, uh, the, these sort of risks and protect against them. And in the paper, we recommended you know, human rights risk assessment as an important safeguard to the provision of these tools and also recommended the, to ensure that the language in the convention on, on this particular issue and on capacity building more generally cannot be interpreted in a way that can facilitate such abuse. So that's the first risk. The second risk, we talked about uh, tools and skills that can be gained through uh, cybercrime capacity building that can unintentionally expose people to vulnerabilities. And this is really about tools and techniques that are provided through cybercrime capacity building, but without the necessary level of training and ongoing assurance, which can lead to unintentionally causing harm. For instance, tools that are used to identify or geolocate criminals IP addresses may result in, for example, the wrong people being arrested if the ones uh, using those tools are not well-trained on their use. So in the paper, we recommend establishing guidelines and best practices for training and equipment provision. And we also recommend putting in place oversight mechanisms to monitor how these resources are being used. And the last risk we talked about is basically the risk of cybercrime capacity building, reinforcing dangerous or harmful international political power dynamics at the expense of equitable transfer of skills, expertise and knowledge. And maybe the simplest way to explain this is by basically calling it conditional capacity building. As we know, capacity building is often thought of and implemented as a soft power tool. And the risk we talk about in the paper is where capacity building is, for example, withheld or limited because it does not further a particular geopolitical aim of the donor country. Or it is provided, but comes with strings attached to it. So in the paper, we talk about the importance of taking rights centric lens to capacity building uh, requests. So this is a kind of a quick overview on the risks that we uh, that we talked about uh, in the paper. Thank you very much, Joyce, for explaining that. And I think what you've highlighted is a kind of spectrum of risks from deliberate malicious harms that could be carried out using this treaty in terms of its capacity building, as well as unintentional and geopolitical risks as well. And I think that the really important point to understand is that the risks that you're talking about are something that could be facilitated by a, a UN convention, which is supposed to be there to protect human rights and so on. So this is a, this is a very important point. So do you think that 
those states that are in kind of thinking in a similar way to you are doing enough to ensure that this treaty can facilitate capacity building through the treaty whilst protecting those rights and protecting against those risks? Thank you for this question, uh, Ian. So for many countries, and we've heard that, we've seen that throughout the process, there are really two big objectives that they want from this convention. The first one is facilitating international cooperation. And the second one is technical assistance and capacity building. So it is a really very important topic. And the risk, as you said, like, you know, they are, they can be intentional, unintentional, conscious or unconscious. But, you know, despite their importance, these human rights risks have or not mentioned as explicitly as they could have been in in the last session or before, but they were alluded to in, I would say, a roundabout way. So like my hope and our hope is that in the next draft, the zero draft that everyone is, is waiting for, the recommendations that we put forward in the paper, which can limit those risks, will be taken into consideration. Thank you, Joyce. And I think one of the safeguards that can be put in place with regard to human rights and other risk in the implementation of this treaty is with regard to civil society participation in those capacity building and technical assistance efforts. And I'm going to go over to Pavlina now. Um, Pavlina, your organization is an NGO that directly supports other NGOs and works directly with governments in the private sector to deliver its objectives. And during that recent session in April, there was disagreement around the extent to which civil society is or should be involved in capacity building and technical assistance to states which could be provided under this treaty. Why do you think that civil society involvement in, in such activities is important? Thank you, Ian, Ian, for the question. And thank you for inviting me to be part of this podcast. I'm very happy to be here with you. Um, you know, fighting cybercrime is a shared responsibility and it requires governments, experts, the private sector, but also civil society, importantly, to act collectively. And um, capacity building or technical assistance must respect human rights and fundamental freedoms, be gender sensitive and inclusive, universal and non-discriminatory, transparent, evidence-based and accountable. And while this is a very long list, it has been pre-approved, at least in in other fora, and um, civil societies are contributing to compliance with all these principles and support an effective approach to implementation of the convention. Uh, Civil society organizations are also very well placed to ensure that cybercrime policies are fit for the purpose. And what I mean by this is that stakeholders have acquired a body of knowledge and expertise that can inform needs-driven approaches, which are based on their work with diverse communities and also very close to the victims of cybercrime. And civil society organizations work towards an effective and sustainable capacity building process They're playing a key role in providing input on the cybercrime landscape, such as the impact of cybercrime, human rights violations, implementation challenges, and implementing the agreed frameworks in practice. And a number of organizations already already have existing initiatives for building capacity, um, which helps in fighting cybercrime. And I would mention specifically the role of a global forum for cyber expertise, but also many civil society organizations have substantive contributions already. So we have to take it into account as a bigger ecosystem. They provide research, which informs the body of knowledge we have about cybercrime and its impact. Uh, They gather evidence, they deliver trainings to broad spectrum of stakeholders, and also raise awareness about the problems connected to cybercrime. 
And uh, to mention the Cyber Peace Institute, we also work closely with vulnerable people. We run programs which are protecting humanitarian and development NGOs globally from cyber threats, as these organizations are often targets of cyber criminals. We also raise awareness about cybercrime, and we have conducted several trainings in this regard. So I think, you know, this is the very like, list-oriented rationale why civil society should be present in the room and in the implementation and in the treaty itself. But as part of broader discussions, I think there is this kind of rationale for civil society being included because it's a multi-stakeholder environment, the cyberspace itself, but also pushed back from some countries. So we see it reflected also in this process, and we have to understand capacity building and inclusion of civil society in broader lines, whether at the UN, such as the Open-Ended Working Group on ICT security or in uh, other fora. Thanks, Pavlina. You've given some really practical examples of the existing forums that already exist, um, as well as um, some other forums and platforms where civil society already contributes to cyber capacity building. And those of us working in the organized crime space as well know that um, civil society is commonly involved in capacity building. So I think it was quite surprising to hear some states wanting to remove references to civil society as part of the technical assistance chapter. From what you've seen in the, in the discussion so far, Pavlina, do you think that we're heading towards a good outcome on the involvement of civil society in line with the important role they play that you've outlined? I would caution some optimism, but um, I remain optimistic about, about the outcome. When it comes to negotiations and where they're heading, we'll see with the zero draft. And as anyone else, we are looking forward to seeing the document because so far the only documents released have been kind of a mixture of, uh, of ideas and views from different countries. And these are sometimes competitive you know, against each other. And this process has been in many aspects a model of the effective inclusion of stakeholders. So we have many hopes that this will be reflected in the outcomes of the process. And I must say that the openness and inclusiveness and the active participation and views put forward by stakeholders during the drafting of the convention already create trust between member states and the involved organizations and experts, which will be critical in the implementation phase. Stakeholders can also help countries to reach consensus and uh, states need to embrace the civil society organization's participation as, you know, as civil society being the allies at this critical time in the process. So as the negotiations move forward, we hope to see that states sustain and intensify this engagement to reach positive outcome for the whole community who is participating in finding cybercrime. And as to the outcome, I remain very optimistic. But we would also need to see stronger support and stronger voices coming from states. Thank you, Pavlina. And if I can quickly ask Joyce to respond on the on a similar point, which is related to Chatham House's work, you've been advocating for and uh, facilitating civil society engagement in this process. How do you rate the level of engagement so far in the ad hoc committee, and do you see that? level of inclusiveness coming through in the discussions that you've seen and heard? I think 
If we wanted to compare this process to other processes, Ian, I would say that this has been quite an inclusive one. I think multi-stakeholders are given the chance to intervene in the official sessions, but also in the intersessional and in quite a, a organized and structured way. So I think there are there have been like you know ample opportunities for us to be there and to make our voices heard. It's not an easy role, I would say, because the process is quite intense time-wise. It hasn't been like a a very, I think, easy thing to do, but it's a very important thing to do. But, you know, there is what there is the kind of the access point, but there's also what will the final outcome be. And so if the final outcome won't take the views of the multi-stakeholders, then I think that would be really a missed opportunity. So I think, yes, we have had the opportunity to intervene and shape the process, but I think What is really important is that these views are, in the end, reflected in the final outcome. Thank you very much, Joyce. And you you mentioned the final outcome. And obviously, the road ahead is that we will have a a zero draft, meaning a first proper draft of the convention at some point in June. Uh, And then the states will meet again in August, end of August, um, in New York for the penultimate meeting. So if I can ask each of you, based on the discussions we've had today and your experiences with the ad hoc committee, can you sum up your key asks for what should be included or not included in the zero draft of the convention to be published in June? And if I can ask Pavlina to go first, please. Thank you, Ian. It will be a list, <laughs> so just get ready, uh, because there would be many asks, but, uh, but I think many of them, you know, we do have our statements, so many of them we already voiced during the during the sessions and I invite listeners to go and, and see the statements from the civil society and from other multi-stakeholders to this process to inform their opinions. But I see as a key issue definitely the use of terms and scope of the criminalization chapter, which are still undecided. And we would urge states for a narrow scope and for a forward-looking, clear and coherent terminology. And this is not only our ask, but also a prerequisite for the treaty to be a practical tool that is really helping fighting cybercrime in practice. And also um, a document which can reach broader agreement or even consensus. Of course, there is still a way to go for strengthening the human rights safeguards, rule of law provisions, privacy protections across the document. Definitely, the treaty should allow for an effective and transparent international cooperation which would be subject to conditions that ensure protection of human rights. And this needs to be both narrowly and clearly defined in the scope and include the important conditions such as on dual criminality and serious crimes, etc. And this is for, for a treaty that could deliver for the victims of cybercrime and the groups that are disproportionately targeted or impacted by cybercrime. As, uh, as already mentioned, many of them by Joyce at the beginning, the treaty should also increase protections and do not dis- decrease our security, our privacy, and other fundamental freedoms in the cyberspace. And an ask as a multi-stakeholder is definitely not to politicize the issue of stakeholder engagement, stakeholder participation, inclusion, and their playing their part in the implementation of the treaty. Stakeholders can help to overcome stalemates in the process and also support implementation of the treaty and they definitely, their contributions are building this inclusiveness and transparency of the whole process and also help ensure sustainability of the convention in the future. 
Thank you very much. And I think from the, the depth and the substantiveness of those asks, you've demonstrated very well why multi-stakeholders do need to be listened to um, in this process. Uh, and if I can now turn to Joyce and see what your asks would be for the Zero Draft to be published in June. Yeah, thank you, Ian. I think Parvina made a very strong case for the role of the multi-stakeholder, which I, in the convention, which I agree with. I think the multi-stakeholder community has done a really great job throughout this process talking about the risks that might arise from the convention that isn't human rights centric and that does not include the right level of safeguards. And they've done a very good job providing concrete recommendations for how these risks can be avoided. So I won't be providing a list per se, but I would direct your listeners to our written contributions on the different topics, human rights, gender, etc., and to the written contributions of other multi-stakeholder actors. I think you know, what is really important to remember is that this convention has a great potential to really make a difference in, in fighting cybercrime. But it can also be harmful and even dangerous to human rights and freedoms if not developed and drafted in, in the kind of right way. And the right way is very much sort of explained. And there are, as I said, a lot of recommendations for how it can be done. So I hope the Zero Draft will take these excellent recommendations into consideration to help maximize the benefits of this convention and really limit its risks. Thank you very much, Joyce. And thank you to you and Pavlina for highlighting some of those very important issues. Indeed, there are both opportunities and real risks in this negotiation. And it's not an easy job for the committee and all of those negotiators who still have some way to go before they can get to trying to find consensus or indeed a way forward. So with just over half a year to go until the treaty is supposed to be adopted, I think substantively speaking, we can say the road ahead looks very rocky indeed. The Global Initiative, along with all of our partners and other multi-stakeholders in this committee, will continue following the process and we will continue analysing it, including through this podcast series. So thank you very much. You've been listening to the UN and Organised Crime, a podcast series from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.